Section 3 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 1, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Matilda of Flanders, Chapter 2, Part 1. Our mistress Matilda, says William of Poitou, the chaplain of the conqueror, had already assumed the name of queen, though she was not yet crowned. She had governed Normandy during the absence of her lord with great prudence and skill. So firmly, indeed, had that authority been sustained, that, though the whole flower and strength of Normandy had followed the fortunes of their warlike duke to the shores of England, not one of the neighboring princes had ventured to molest the Duchess Regent. It is true that her kinsman, the Emperor Henry, had engaged, in event of any aggression on the part of France or Bretagne, to defend Normandy with the whole strength of Germany, and she also had a powerful neighbor and protector in the Earl of Flanders, her father. But great credit was certainly due to her own political conduct, in keeping the duchy free, both from external embroilments and internal strife, at such a momentous period. Her government was very popular, as well as prosperous in Normandy, where, surrounded by the most learned men of the age, she advanced, in no slight degree, the progress of civilization and refinement. The encouragement afforded by her to arts and letters has won for this princess golden reports in the chronicle lore of that age. Well aware was Matilda of the importance which it is to princes, to enlist in their service the pens of those who possess the power of defending or undermining thrones, and whose influence continues to bias the minds of men after the lapse of ages. This princess, says Ordericus Vitalis, who derived her descent from the kings of France and emperors of Germany, was even more distinguished for the purity of her mind and manners than for her illustrious lineage. As a queen she was munificent, and liberal of her gifts. She united beauty with gentle breeding and all the graces of Christian holiness. While the victorious arms of her illustrious spouse subdued all things before him, she was indefatigable in alleviating distress in every shape, and redoubled her alms. In a word she exceeded all commendations, and won the love of all hearts. Such is the character which one of the most eloquent and circumstantial historians of the eleventh century has given of Matilda. Yet Ordericus Vitalis, as a contemporary witness, could scarcely have been ignorant of the dark stain which the first exercise of her newly acquired power in England has left upon her memory. The Chronicle of Tewkesbury, which states that Britric Miao, the lord of the honor of Gloucester, when he resided at her father's court as ambassador from Edward the Confessor, had refused to marry Matilda, adds that in the first year of the reign of William the Conqueror, Matilda obtained from her lord the grant of all Britric's lands and honors, and that she then caused the unfortunate Saxon to be seized at his manor in Hainley and conveyed to Winchester, where he died in prison and was privately buried. Thus then does it appear that Matilda, after having filled for fourteen years a most exalted station, and enjoying the greatest happiness as wife and mother, has secretly brooded over the bitter memory of the slight 
that had been offered to her in early youth for the purpose of inflicting the deadliest vengeance in return on the man who had rejected the love she had once condescended to offer this circumstance is briefly related not in a general but a topographical history without comment and it is in no slight degree confirmed by the records of the doomsday book where it appears that avening tewkesbury fairford thornbury wittenhurst and various other possessions in gloucestershire belonging to britrick the son of algar were granted to matilda by the conqueror and after her death reverting to the crown whereby william again bestowed on their second son william rufus matilda however deprived gloucester of its charter and civic liberties merely because it was the city of the unfortunate britrick perhaps for showing some sign of resentment for his fate we feared that the first of our norman queens must on this evidence stand convicted of the crimes of wrong and robbery if not of absolute murder and if it had been possible to make a post-mortem examination of the body of the unfortunate son of algar sufficient reason might have been seen perhaps for the private nature of his interment all this wrong was done by agency for if dates be correct matilda had not yet entered england a few days after his coronation william feeling some reason to distrust the londoners withdrew to his old quarters at berkhamstead where he kept his court and succeeded in drawing round him many of the most influential of the saxon princes and thanes to whom in return for their oaths of allegiance he restored their estates and honors his next step for the mutual satisfaction of his norman followers and saxon subjects was to lay the foundation of the church and abbey of st martin now called battle abbey where perpetual prayers were directed to be offered up for the repose of the souls of all who had fallen in that sanguinary conflict the high altar of this magnificent monument of the norman victory was set up on the very spot where harold's body was found or according to others where he first pitched his gonfanon tranquillity was now restored in england or things were fast progressing to that most desired consummation william having been now six months separated from his wife and family his desire to embrace them once more and to display to his norman subjects his newly acquired grandeur induced him to revisit his native country at a time when it would have been far more conducive to his interests to have remained in england previous to his departure he placed strong norman garrisons in all his castles he appointed his half-brother odo bishop of bayeux with his faithful kinsman and friend william fitz osborne regents of england and carried with him to normandy all the leading men among the anglo-saxons among these were edgar etheline morcar edwin and waltheo these lords who certainly had no wish to become the companions of his voyage were not overly pleased at the idea of swelling the pride of the normans by forming a part of william's triumphant pageant william was determined to spend the easter festival in normandy with his queen and reckless of the seeds of disaffection and disgust which he was sowing in the bosoms of his new subjects he re-embarked in the mora in the month of march ten sixty seven and with the most splendid company that ever sailed from england he crossed the seas and landed on his native shore a little below the abbey of Fescamp. 
Matilda was already there, with her children, in readiness to receive and welcome her illustrious lord, who was greeted with the most enthusiastic rapture by all classes of his subjects. For joy of William's return, the solemn feast of Lent was this year kept as a festival. All labor was suspended, and nothing but mirth and pleasure prevailed in his native Normandy. William appears to have had infinite pleasure in displaying, not only to his wife and family, but to the foreign ambassadors, the costly spoils which he had brought over from England. The quantity and exquisite workmanship of the gold and silver plate, and withal, the richness of the embroidered garments, wrought by the skillful hands of the Anglo-Saxon ladies, then esteemed so inestimably precious in all parts of Europe, that they were called, by distinction, Anglicum Opus, excited the admiration and astonishment of all beholders, but more particularly did the splendid dress of his guards, and the magnificence and beauty of the long-haired and moustached Anglo-Saxon nobles, by whom he was attended, attracted the wonder of the foreign princes and peers. The whole summer was spent by William in a series of triumphant progresses, through the towns and cities of Normandy, with his queen duchess. Meanwhile, England, in addition to all the recent horrors of war and rapine, was suffering at one and the same time the evils attendant on a system of absenteeism, and the oppressive weight of a foreign yoke. The spirit of freedom was crushed, but not extinguished, among the people of the land, and the absence of the conqueror was regarded as a favorable opportunity for expelling the unwelcome locusts who had fastened upon their land, and were devouring its fatness. And a secret plot was in agitation, for a simultaneous rising throughout England, for the purpose of a general massacre of the Normans. But though the terror of William's actual presence was withdrawn for a season, he kept up a strict espionage on the proceedings of the English. The first rumor of what was going on among them roused him from the career of pleasure which he had been pursuing. Relinquishing the idea of keeping a splendid Christmas with his beloved family, he reappointed Matilda and his son Robert regents of Normandy, and embarking on a stormy sea, he sailed from Dieppe on the 6th of December. On the 7th he arrived at Winchelsea, and proceeded immediately to London, to the consternation of the malcontents who thought they were sure of him for the winter season. He kept Christmas in London, and though he used very prompt and energetic measures for crushing the insurrection, he gave a conciliatory reception to such of the English prelates and nobles as ventured to attend his summons. After the suppression of the revolt caused by the imposition of Dane Gelt, William, perceiving the disadvantages attendant on a queenless court, and feeling withal the greatest desire to enjoy the society of his beautiful consort, dispatched a noble company into Normandy, to conduct Matilda and her children to England. She joyfully obeyed the welcome mandate of her lord, and crossed the sea, with a stately cortege of nobles, knights, and ladies. Among the learned clerks by whom she was attended was the celebrated Gui, Bishop of Amiens, who had distinguished himself by a heroic poem on the defeat and fall of Harold. Matilda arrived in England soon after Easter, in the month of April, 1068, and proceeding immediately to Winchester, was received with great joy by her lord, and preparations were instantly commenced for her coronation, which was appointed to take place in that city on Whit Sunday. 
the great festivals of the church appear in the middle ages to have been considered by the english as peculiarly auspicious days for the solemnization of coronations and marriages if we may judge by the frequency of their occurrence at those seasons sunday was generally chosen for a coronation day william who had been exceedingly anxious to share his newly acquired honors with matilda chose to be recrowned at the same time to render the pageant of her consecration more imposing and farther to conciliate the affections of his english subjects he repeated for the second time the oath by which he engaged to govern with justice and moderation and to preserve inviolate that great palladium of english liberty the right of trial by jury this coronation was far more splendid than that which had preceded it in westminster abbey at william's first inauguration where the absence of the queen and her ladies deprived the ceremony of much of its brilliancy and the alarming conflagration by which it was interrupted must have greatly abridged the pomp and festivities that had been anticipated on that occasion here everything went off auspiciously it was in the smiling season of the year when the days were long and bright without having attained to the oppressiveness of summer heat the company according to the report of contemporary historians was exceedingly numerous and noble and the conqueror who appears to have been in a wonderfully gracious mood on that day was very sprightly and facetious on the occasion and conferred honors on all who solicited the graceful and majestic person of queen matilda and the number and beauty of her fine children charmed the populace and every one present was delighted with the order and regularity with which this attractive pageant was conducted the nobles of normandy attended their duchess to the church but after the crown was placed on her head by aldred archbishop of york she was served by her new subjects the english the first occasion on which the office of champion was instituted is said to have been at this splendid coronation at winchester where william caused his consort to be associated with him in all the honors of royalty the splendid ceremony of matilda's inauguration banquet afforded precedence for most of the grand feudal offices at subsequent coronations among these the office of grand panetier has been for some time extinct his service was to bear the salt and the carving knives from the pantry to the king's dining-table and his fees were the salt cellars spoons and knives laid on the royal table forks were not among the royal luxuries at the board of the mighty william and his fair matilda who both in feeding themselves verified the proverb which says that fingers were made before forks the grand panetier likewise served the bread to the sovereigns and received in addition to the rest of his fees the bread cover called the cover pane for this service the beauchamps held the manor of beauchamp kibworth the manor of addington was likewise granted by the conqueror to tezeline his cook for composing a dish of white soup called dillagrote which especially pleased the royal palate when the noble company had retired from the church and were seated at dinner in the banqueting hall says henderson in his life of the conqueror a bold cavalier called marmion completely armed rode into the hall and did at three several times repeat this challenge if any person denies that our most gracious sovereign lord william and his spouse matilda are not king and queen of england he is a false-hearted traitor and a liar and here i as champion do challenge him to single combat 
No person accepted the challenge, and Matilda was called Lorraine ever after. The same year, Matilda brought into the world her fourth son, Henry, surnamed Beauclerc. This event took place in Selby, in Yorkshire, and was productive of some degree of satisfaction to the people, who considered the English-born prince with far more complacency than his three Norman brethren, Robert, Richard, and William Rufus. Matilda settled upon her new-born son all the lands she possessed in England and Normandy. They were to revert to him after her death. Tranquility now appeared to be completely restored, and Matilda, enjoying every happiness as a wife, a mother, and a queen, seemed to be placed at the very summit of earthly prosperity. Whether it be by accident, or owing to a close attention to the reality he saw before him, it is certain that the antique limner who drew Matilda's portrait has represented the organ of constructiveness in her head as very decidedly developed. It is singular, too, that of this propensity, her tastes and pursuits afforded remarkable instances in the noble ecclesiastical buildings of which she was the foundress, and in her ingenious and curious example of industry in the Bayou tapestry, wherein she has wrought the epic of her husband's exploits, from Harold's first landing in Normandy to his fall at Hastings. It is, in fact, a most important historical document, in which the events and costume of that momentous period have been faithfully preserved to us, by the indefatigable fingers of the first of our Norman queens, and certainly deserves a particular description. This curious monument of antiquity is still preserved in the Cathedral of Bayeux, where it is distinguished by the name of the Duke of Normandy's toilette, which simply means the Duke's great cloth. It is a piece of canvas, about nineteen inches in breadth, but upwards of sixty-seven yards in length, on which, as we have said, is embroidered the history of the conquest of England by William of Normandy, commencing with the visit of Harold to the Norman court, and ending with his death at the Battle of Hastings, 1066. The leading transactions of these eventful years, the death of Edward the Confessor, and the coronation of Harold, in the chamber of the royal dead, are represented in the clearest and most regular order, in this piece of needlework, which contains many hundred figures of men, horses, birds, beasts, trees, houses, castles, and churches, all executed in their proper colors, with names and inscriptions over them, to elucidate the story. This pictorial chronicle of her mighty consort's achievements appears to have been, in part at least, designed for Matilda by Tyrold, a dwarf artist, who, moved by a natural desire of claiming his share in the celebrity which he foresaw would attach to the work, has cunningly introduced his own effigies and name, thus authenticating the Norman tradition, that he was the person who illuminated the canvas with the proper outlines and colors. It is probable that the wife of the conqueror, and her Norman ladies, were materially assisted in this stupendous work of feminine skill and patience, by some of the hapless daughters of the land, who, like the Grecian captives described by Homer, were employed in recording the story of their own reverses, and the triumphs of their haughty foes. About this period William laid the foundation of that mighty fortress and royal residence, the Tower of London, which was erected by a priestly architect and engineer, Gundulf, Bishop of Rochester. He also built the castle of Hurstmonceux, on the spot which had, in the first instance, 
been occupied by the wooden fort which he had brought over from Normandy, and, for the better security of his government, built and strongly garrisoned many other strong fortresses, forming a regular chain of military stations, from one end of England to the other. These proceedings were regarded with jealous displeasure, by such of the Anglo-Saxon nobles as had hitherto maintained a sort of passive amity with their Norman sovereign, and they began gradually to desert his court. Among the first to withdraw from the royal circle was the mighty Saxon brethren, Edwin and Morcar. They were the darlings of the people, and secretly favored by the clergy. A third part of England was under their authority, and the reigning Prince of Wales was their nephew. William had in the first instance endeavored, by the most insidious caresses, to conciliate Edwin, who was the youngest of the two, and remarkable for the beauty of his person, and his noble and engaging qualities. The conqueror had actually promised to give him one of his daughters in marriage. When, however, the young nobleman demanded his bride, he met with denial, at which he was so much exasperated, that he retired with his brother into the north, where they organized a plan with the kings of Scotland and Denmark, and the princes of Wales, for separate but simultaneous attacks upon William, in which the disaffected Saxons were to join. The prompt and energetic measures of the conqueror defeated their project before they could be brought to maturation. The brother earls were compelled to sue for pardon, and obtained a deceitful amnesty. The repeated and formidable revolts of the English, in 1069, compelled William to provide for the safety of Matilda and her children in Normandy. The presence of the Queen Duchess was, indeed, no less required there, than that of her warlike lord in England. She was greatly beloved in the duchy, where her government was considered exceedingly able, and the people were beginning to murmur at the absence of the court and the nobility, which, after the states of Normandy had been so severely taxed to support the expense of the English wars, was regarded as a national calamity. It was, therefore, a measure of great political expediency on the part of William to reappoint Matilda, for the third time, to the regency of Normandy. The name of his eldest son, Robert, was, as before, associated with that of Matilda in the regency, and at parting, the conqueror entreated his spouse to pray for the speedy termination of the English troubles, to encourage the arts of peace in Normandy, and to take care of the interests of their youthful heir. The latter injunction was somewhat superfluous, for Matilda's fondness for her firstborn betrayed her into the most injudicious acts of partiality in his favor, and in all probability was the primary cause of the dissensions between him and his brothers, and the subsequent rupture between that wrong-headed prince and his royal father. The death of the Earl of Flanders, Matilda's father, and the unsettled state of her native country, owing to the strife between her brothers and nephews, who appeared bent on effecting the ruin of each other, and the fall of the ancient royal house of Flanders, greatly troubled her, and added in no slight degree to the feelings of anxiety and sorrow with which her return to Normandy was clouded, after the brief splendor of her residence in England as queen. End of section 3